The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio, as I like to do every week. Let me take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are tuning in over the internet from remote locations. We thank you for your service and wish you a safe passage home. I also want to welcome listeners who are tuning in on new radio affiliates in Texas, California, Wyoming, Florida, New York, and Illinois, and throughout all 50 states. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, five-term senator of New Mexico and former chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Mr. Jeff Bingaman, will be joining us to talk about the effects climate change is having on places like the Alaskan coast and why he has been such a strong advocate of energy independence and a comprehensive energy plan for America. But before Mr. Bingaman joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Jesse Francis Bingaman was born in El Paso, Texas, and grew up in Silver City, New Mexico. He earned his undergraduate degree from Harvard University and his law degree from Stanford University, after which he went into private practice. Then in 1978, Bingaman was elected Attorney General of New Mexico. Four years later, he was elected to the United States Senate, where he served five terms. While in the Senate, Bingaman was known as a serious, low-key, extremely methodical senator who kept his head down and kept the work moving forward in spite of chairing the Energy and Natural Resources Committee and serving on the Finance Committee, Health Education Pensions Committee, and the Joint Economic Committee, somehow Bingaman managed to stay out of partisan controversy and the media spotlight. Mr. Bingaman stepped down from the Senate in 2013, but not before becoming the ninth most senior member of the U.S. Senate. He returned to his alma mater, Stanford Law School, to become a distinguished fellow at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, former Senator of New Mexico, Mr. Jeff Bingaman. Thank you for joining us today, Senator. Great to be with you, Rebecca. If it's okay with you, I'd I'd like to start our conversation off with a few questions about your time in the Senate. Based on the current election, Americans could get the impression that only showboats and loud personalities can get elected. Yet you seem to defy that perception. Five successful terms in the Senate and perfectly happy to hand the microphone to someone else so you could go back to work. So I wonder whether you feel a quieter, more serious, thoughtful candidate has any chance these days. Well, I think uh, I think in the final analysis, uh, uh, such uh, such a candidate will have a, a decent chance. I think that uh, you know I, I can't explain all that's going on in, in particularly in the Republican primaries for, uh, for president at the current time. But uh, my own experience in the Senate is that there are a lot of people there serving there today who are uh, very serious uh, public servants trying to find out what the right solution is and trying to find uh, bipartisan solutions to to the country's problems. So so I don't think it's so unusual to have a uh, a person who's not a showboat uh, uh, in elected public office. I think it's uh, fairly it's fairly normal at least in my experience there in the Senate. And yet we see that on the GOP side, folks like Kasich and Carson, who tend to be quieter and more cerebral, don't seem to be doing as well. 
Well, it does seem like uh, the people who are uh, voting in these Republican primaries seem to want someone who is uh, an outsider and who will uh, shake things up and uh, and basically run against the uh, the so-called establishment or the existing uh, power structure within their party. So that's. Uh, that seems to be the case, and as I say, I can't explain all of that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I thank you for commenting on it. Uh, I worry sometimes that the Jeff Binghamans of the world just, uh, you know, they don't get the publicity or the media airtime that they deserve, and it's causing the American public to think that uh, all of their elected officials are blowhards. Well, I do think you'd get that impression if you just watched uh, some of the... Uh, presidential debates and some of the news uh, coverage of the uh, particularly on the Republican uh, uh, side in the presidential races but but as I say when you get below that level and you you start looking at people who who uh, get elected to the Congress and who uh, succeed in the Congress I think you find a lot of people who are who are very seriously working to find solutions and and are not blowhards. Well, that is certainly reassuring to hear from you. Now, you spent a great deal of your time in the Senate working in the area of energy independence. So let me ask you whether you've heard anything from the current field on the Democratic and the GOP side, Uh, anything from the current field of presidential candidates that gets you excited in terms of an energy plan. Well, you know, I I think the truth is uh, we are moving ahead uh, in a uh, slow but methodical way toward uh, putting in place uh, something that could be uh, described as an energy plan. Uh, And uh, uh, obviously we don't have agreement uh, between the Congress and the president on, on what should be in it, but I think the president has taken the lead in trying to reduce greenhouse gases at the same time that we're uh, transitioning from uh, such great dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, so that's all sort of happening in a slow, much too slow a way. But uh, the presidential candidates on the Democratic side, I think, support that effort by the president. Uh, on the Republican side, there's a very different point of view, particularly on uh, the issue of climate change. They seem to to uh, want to ignore the issue and uh, basically construct energy policy in this country as though uh, climate change was not a factor. So so there's a big disconnect between the two parties on the subject of energy and, and climate change, and I hope that part of this campaign, once we get into a general election campaign, I'm hoping that uh, the American public will, will focus on that distinction and... Uh, and, uh, of course, I'm on the Democratic side, and I think it would be great if uh, some people voted Democratic because they thought that uh, the Democratic candidate would, would take the more responsible position on climate change. Well, regardless of its uh, GOP or Democratic uh, nominee or, or president uh, in, the next, um, in the next White House, um, we do have a problem on our hands, and that is that as oil prices decline, uh, many of these, uh, you know, more uh, greenhouse-friendly uh, energies, such as solar, wind, even nuclear, become less attractive from an economic standpoint. Many people are worried that as oil prices plunge, uh, that will really do in the renewable energy business. No, I think that's a very valid worry. Uh, the economic incentive to... Uh transition from such heavy dependence on fossil fuels is uh, uh, has gone gone away to a very large extent as you say with the low price of oil the low price of natural gas it's very hard to get people interested in buying fuel efficient vehicles it's very hard to get them interested in in uh, cutting their use of, of fossil fuels uh, when they're so cheap so uh, I think the only the only uh, counter to that, or the only antidote to that, is to uh, is to get agreement on public policies that will continue to to move us in the direction of uh, of less greenhouse gas emissions and. And we don't have that consensus as yet in this country, unfortunately. We don't, and so when oil prices plunge, we're very reactive. 
you know, suddenly it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not economical to look at alternative sources. That's why there's an importance, uh, extra importance put on uh, developing a comprehensive national energy plan so that we aren't reactive when these prices start to dip. Um, we have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Jeff Bingaman. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best U.S. Sparkling Wine Award. We fared really well overall. We had three wines win best of class, which was great. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea, or find us online at caracciolicellars.com, or reach us by phone, 831-622-7722. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right, I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and -and drag-and-drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most important impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? Do you know a local resident or organization who has done something extraordinary in Monterey, San Benito, or Santa Cruz counties? Now is your chance to honor them. The American Red Cross of the Central Coast is seeking nominations of unsung heroes to be honored at our upcoming 2016 Central Coast Heroes Breakfast. Local heroes need not be famous, but simply a local person who went above and beyond when the need arose. It might be a lifeguard who saved a drowning child, an ordinary citizen who performed CPR when a stranger collapsed, or someone who simply provided outstanding service to our community in one of the specified categories. The nomination deadline is February 26, 2016. Visit www.redcross.org backslash ccheroes2016. That's www.redcross.org backslash ccheroes2016. For more information and nominate your hero today. Hello folks, Michael Olson here, talking with Rena Mills, RV Service Center, way up at the top of Santa Cruz 2525 Mission. Rena, it's been hot, bad news for RV roofs. What happens during the summer is all those sealants at the top of your roof start cracking up, and in the winter, when the rain comes, you've got nothing but leaks everywhere. Well, it rained. So what should people do now that the rainy season is coming? Stop by RV Service Center for a free roof inspection. We climb up and we check all the sealants, caulkings to make sure that they're still rubberized and flexible enough to keep your RV watertight. So Rena had a good friend who backed up under some trees and now he's got a little nick on his roof. What should he do? Bring it down to RV Service Center. We'll inspect it and you can actually claim that as an insurance claim and receive a new roof. When you have your insurance work completed at RV Service Center, we give you a gift certificate equal to the value of your deductible. Wow, that's like a free repair. RV Service Center 2525 Mission, way up at the top of Santa Cruz. Keep the water out, keep the fun in.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former five-term senator from New Mexico, Mr. Jeff Bingaman. And before the break, we were talking about the effect that cheap oil prices are having on the economic incentive to move toward more renewable, clean energy sources. Let's talk about nuclear energy for a moment, which uh, currently provides about 11% of the world's energy. Uh, Though we call it clean energy, we don't we still just don't have a cohesive plan as to what to do with uh, nuclear waste. At the present time, U.S. nuclear power plants uh, have produced about 70,000 metric tons of uh, spent fuel and nuclear weapons about another 13,000 metric tons. And so far, the uh, the idea seems to be to store the waste where it's being generated, which if you look at a map of the U.S., that means the waste is spread all throughout the U.S. What do you say to folks who worry about the safety of so many interim storage sites? Well, what I say is that uh, this is uh, a major failing uh, of the federal government, uh, a failing of not not settling on a permanent repository uh, uh, where this waste can be disposed of. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the effort was made for many years to go ahead and do this with Yucca Mountain in Nevada. And, uh, of course, that was uh, blocked and, and derailed. Uh, Senator Reid, of course, took a, a strong stand against that in the Senate, and, and various others did as well. But uh, uh, we, we have not come up with an alternative. Uh, the the uh, Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu, appointed a Blue Ribbon Commission that uh, came up with recommendations for an alternative uh, several years ago, and those recommendations made good sense to me. Uh, they basically said what, what we should be doing is, is, uh, is trying to identify places that are safe for deposit of this nuclear waste, but are also uh, uh, willing to accept it. So we wouldn't get into the political hassle we've gotten into in the case of uh, Yucca Mountain. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that has not gone forward. Uh, uh, it has not been a priority, and uh, and I think uh, we we are pretty much dead in the water on the issue at this time. Well, you but you will admit, from a sheer statistical standpoint, the more interim sites you store waste at, the greater the risk that the storage will fail or the site become a terrorist target or something's bound to occur? No, I think that uh, there are uh, clearly the the best policy is to go ahead and and uh, move the waste from where it is currently stored to to a permanent repository. Yes. And, of course, the, the commission that uh, Secretary Chu set up uh, recommended that in addition to a permanent repository or permanent disposal site, we also have interim sites uh, so that uh, you could move it to those interim sites. Uh, but uh, uh, they uh, they recommended both be established, and, uh, and and I think that makes some sense. Now, what I thought was smart about your time in the Senate is that when these interim sites were proposed, you suggested that until a permanent storage site was approved, uh, that uh, the interim site should not be approved. Is that right? Well, yeah, I, I uh, tried to tried to tie the two together and yes, say I you, know. could, <laughs> you, you couldn't uh, you couldn't move uh, utilities could not move uh, in excess of a certain amount of their waste to a temporary site unless we also got agreement to establish a permanent site and the location for it. Because uh, otherwise, the interim sites become the de facto permanent sites, and you've uh, you may have solved the problem of that particular utility and moved it out of that location, but uh, you you've got it in another location which uh, uh, which may not be much safer. There you go. Well, you know that's that's just another example of kicking the can down the road, which we seem to do so well uh, until the can's too big to kick. Uh, we also uh, happen to face the issue of the fact that most of America's nuclear power plants were designed to last 40 years, and we keep upgrading them and trying to extend their life cycles because we're not developing other energy sources fast enough. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I do think that uh, we, we keep extending the life of these, uh, of these uh, nuclear uh, plants, and I, 
I favor doing that because I think uh, the more power we can produce from non-emitting sources, the better off we are on the climate change front. Uh, and I would like very much to see us improve the technology and to a point where we could uh, uh, have a, an even larger percentage of our power produced from nuclear uh, sources. But uh, so far we haven't been able to do that, and the cost is ex- 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 expensive, of course. And, and the point you made earlier about the low cost of fossil fuels, that has a big impact on the viability of ever constructing another nuclear power plant because if if natural gas is going to remain as cheap as it is today uh, the economics do not lead one to to build additional nuclear power plants in the future yes that's right and it all comes down to economics when we take a look at uh, the different energy sources and their viability now, something that's always bothered me is that uh, nuclear contamination isn't something that conveniently stops at a country's borders, as we were all reminded of during the Fukushima disaster, um, as we worried that the radiation was moving through the air and the water. About 60 new nuclear power plants are currently under construction, primarily in Asia. So is this another case where we need some kind of global safety standards and agreements um, similar to what we just did with climate change? Well, I think any, anything along those lines would be uh, reassuring if, if we could get international agreement on standards that would apply to, to nuclear power plants. And to some extent, I think there are voluntary standards. I, I don't think they're... Uh, they're perhaps as enforceable as, as they need to be. But uh, I think, uh, you know, as, as you're pointing out, there more and more of these problems have an international aspect to them, and that puts uh, heavy, heavy emphasis on the importance of, of, of trying, to, trying to come to international agreements in these areas so we can, uh, we, particularly anything that's affecting the environment, so that we... Uh, uh, we can control it no matter where it occurs. Absolutely. I, you point out that these problems have an international aspect to them. Most of the biggest problems that we face, the intractable ones, terrorism, viruses, nuclear waste, weapons and safe practices, climate change, even our intertwined economies, they really aren't domestic problems anymore. They don't stop at our borders. No, they really don't, and uh, I think climate change may be the one issue that uh, is waking people up to this fact. I do think that uh, uh, it's clear that there's no solution to climate to the problem of climate change that doesn't involve all the significant countries, uh, significant economies in the world, and uh, I think as people become aware of that, and uh, we hopefully can put in place mechanisms to, to promote that cooperation, then, uh, then maybe, maybe we can do it in other fields as well. Yes, I, I hope that that becomes a template or an example so that we can get more international cooperation on some of these other issues. We have to take another short break. We'll return after these brief messages from today's sponsors. You're listening to The Costa Report. love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. 
Okay, everyone, Valentine's Day is this week. If you're looking for a sure way to win this Valentine's Day, it's really very simple. My wife's favorite Valentine's treat is delicious chocolatey dipped strawberries. And I got major kudos last year by giving her the most decadent dipped berries she's ever tasted. They're from Sherry's Berries. And let me tell you, these berries are huge, juicy, and delicious. They come freshly dipped in dark, white, and milk chocolatey goodness and sprinkled with awesome gourmet toppings like chocolate chips and chopped nuts. Your sweetheart will love Love these berries. Plus, listen to this. Right now, you can get these Sherry's berries starting at $19.99. That's juicy, gourmet, freshly dipped berries for $19.99. If you want hero status, you can double them for only $9.99 more. But don't wait, because Valentine's Day is this week. And this offer expires this Friday. The only way to get this fantastic deal is to go to berries.com, click on the microphone in the upper right corner, and use my secret code 7070. That's berries.com, secret code 7070. Here's Marta with speed on the left. Makes the move on Petrovic in front. Back shot. He scores. A spectacular goal by Patrick Marto as he blasted his way in. Hey, sports fans. Thomas Todd here with some sports fun for you. The Sharks are playing the Vancouver Canucks Saturday, March 5th, and KSEO and KOMY want to send you and a friend to the game. And get this, you won't have to drive home because KSEO and KOMY are going to put you up for the night in the deluxe room at the Hilton San Jose, the preferred hotel of the San Jose Sharks and SAP Center. Stay Hilton, go everywhere. Here is how you can win the Sharks San Jose getaway. Listen to KSEO and when you hear Dan Rusinowski's He scores! Be the third person to call 831-479-1080 and you'll be entered into the drawing to be held Wednesday, March 2nd on Good Morning Monterey Bay. Simple as that. Listen for Rusinowski and win a shot at a Sharks getaway in San Jose. Listen and win the Saturday, March 5th Sharks getaway weekend. Brought to you by KSCO, KOMY, the San Jose Sharks, and the Hilton San Jose. Stay Hilton, go everywhere. Women now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever. Harvard Medical School has now opened its doors to new female applicants. The first woman is now in space. The majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women. Ed Robertson inviting you to join us for the next edition of TV Confidential. Sunday morning from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. You're on KSCO AM 1080 in Santa Cruz. We will welcome back our friend, actor, author, and television pioneer, Michael St. John. We hope you'll join us for that. That's TV Confidential every Sunday morning from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. on AM 1080 KSCO. Listen and be heard. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former Attorney General and five-time Senator of New Mexico, Mr. Jeff Bingaman. And when we went to break, we were talking about the need for international cooperation to cure our most dangerous and intractable problems, such as climate change, terrorism, nuclear safety, and waste disposal, disposal uh, which uh, has to... Uh, you know, to some degree, elevate the importance of the Secretary of State. Would you agree? Well, I think so, yeah. I think uh, it's obvious that most of, not not most perhaps, but a very large uh, amount of, of what we're trying to get accomplished in the world is uh, involves international uh, cooperation. And accordingly, uh, Secretary of State is in the middle of uh, a great deal. So, I think Secretary Kerry is uh, is on a plane all the time, trying to trying to deal with one international crisis after another, and uh, in addition to that, trying to uh, help help uh, get some of these agreements in place to deal with some of these major problems. You know, when in uh, corporations, I I worked in the corporate world, not in government. When you had a job that expanded like that, you usually split it into two. Well, that's a thought. Now we have the Secretary of Defense, and uh, and the Secretary of Defense does uh, take on a lot of the responsibility. Does have a lot of the responsibility for for the international issues involving uh, the Defense Department. Uh, 
uh, so uh, uh, so that's uh, to some extent the the job of of working with our allies to solve international problems is already split in two between mm-hmm. the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. But uh, but it seems so diverse. I mean, I don't know how the Secretary of State talks about terrorism one moment and says, let's move on to uh, rampant uh, viruses, and now let's move on to climate change, and now let's move on to your nuclear safety program. Well, I, I mean, I think that some of these don't get addressed simply because, uh, you know, it's it's too diverse a set. Well, that, that may be true, and, and I do think, for example, in the agreement that uh, was worked out with regard to Iran's uh, nuclear program. Uh, the Secretary of State, uh, uh, Secretary Kerry, then uh, involved uh, Secretary Moniz, the Secretary of Energy, in a very direct way, or the president involved him, perhaps, is a better way to say it, in a very direct way, because because the nuclear issues were ones which were naturally under the jurisdiction of the of the U.S. Energy Department. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so there is some effort to to broaden the field of players who have responsibility for some of these international issues. But, but your point is well taken that uh, that uh, so much of of what we need to be doing and what, so much of what we're trying to do uh, is international. Uh, it, it does make you wonder whether the Secretary of State can do it all. Yes, well, I do wonder about that, and I have to keep reminding a lot of listeners that write to me that most of our domestic problems aren't really domestic problems. They don't stop at our border. Uh, they all are connected in some way to uh, diplomacy and earning uh, diplomatic cooperation. And we've lost a great deal of our diplomatic clout in recent years. And that's why so many of these problems seem to be stacking up like planes trying to land on the same runway. They they just keep circling around and around administration after administration. Well, I, I think that uh, we still have substantial diplomatic clout, uh, but... Uh, you know, there's no question that uh, since the Second World, at the end of the Second World War, the U.S. was sort of the only uh, free world superpower. And then, of course, at the end of the Cold War, we were the only uh, remaining superpower. At least that was the perception at the time. And now that's. Uh, that's there's a sense changed. we've squandered that. Well, I'm not sure how much we've squandered it. Uh, we, I. I, I I personally think that we squandered it by involving ourselves in so many military uh, activities, uh, particularly the Iraq War. I thought that was not uh, in any way required and uh, and was not a good use of the country's uh, uh, lives and treasure to to uh, uh, to fight that war. But um, so so to that extent, we have squandered it. But there have also been a uh, there have been things happening in the world which uh, inevitably uh, have resulted in us sharing power with other countries. China's growth, uh, China's influence uh, today is uh, is far greater than it uh, has been, you know, since uh, since we've become a nation. And uh, and that's not all because of our squandering our our influence. That, that's just the the change in in the reality. Sure. I, you know, China's one example, but I, I look at something like the return to Cold War relations with Russia as an example. You know, when the Cold War ended, there was our opportunity to bring Russia into the fold. And, uh, you know, and, and maybe one of the things, looking backward in time, was uh, in, we should have invited them to join NATO, no, it's very possible that we should have, and it's uh, and uh, perhaps uh, the expansion of NATO to the extent that it's been expanded uh, uh, has has uh, exacerbated the. It's the, antagonized the, Putin. Yeah. He's come right out and said, "You can't say you're my friend." It's the end of the Cold War. Uh, we want you know we want you to be part of the global economic community. At the same time, keep amassing missiles pointed at me. I mean, which is it? (laughs) 
and, yeah. and and you know we just keep making one mis, uh, misstep after another in terms of foreign policy not just the Iraq war but but the opportunity there after the Cold War to bring Russia into the fold and instead now we're back to Cold War relations we're back to antagonizing Putin in Syria I guess we're we're working something out in Syria now, but it's clear that, uh, you know, Putin is saying, make up your mind. You know, you want to work together. I'm either an enemy or I'm a friend. Well, you know, I, I, I take part of what you're saying, but I got, I've got to say I think Putin is, would be a very difficult ally to, uh, uh, to make permanent friendship with. I, th- I think he has a very d- different view of Russia and his role as the head of Russia than uh, than most Western countries would uh, be willing to accept. And uh, so- oh, I agree with you a hundred percent, Senator. I agree with you. Uh, Putin is a difficult man to uh, develop any kind of. Uh, uh, good diplomatic relationship with, but I would argue that there would have been no Putin. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I would like to think uh, that that possibility was there, but, uh, you know, when Yeltsin uh, sort of stepped down and uh, and Putin uh, stepped in, uh, at that point, I don't think people saw it as the shift that that has, in fact, occurred. I think Putin has has uh, has dug his heels in and and uh, and taken a much more antagonistic view of the West than than uh, his predecessor would have had Yeltsin remained. Yes, I I, I agree with you. I I do, and I I think it's it's a shame. I I worry about our ability to rally international support for so many of these issues. Uh, we it's one thing to talk about getting our own Congress to cooperate <laughs> and not stonewall each other. And I suppose if we can't do it in our own country, the idea that we're going to rally other countries uh, probably seems fantastic to some people. Yeah, I, I do think we're we're in the odd circumstance that a lot of these things we're trying to persuade the rest of the world of, we, we can't persuade uh, uh, the Congress of. So, uh, <laughs> yes. uh you know, it, it's it's an awkward position, and the administration is uh, tr- putting the best face on it they can. But uh, I think the rest of the world, understandably, can wonder about how how is all this going to work if, <laughs> if the Congress won't go along. That's right. Uh, you got that right. I mean, they're wondering if you can't get along in your own family, should you go and give the neighbors advice? All right, all right well, we have to take our final intermission. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars. And today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli, who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business? Um, You know, in 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley, and then the extension of that went to grapes, and here we are today. 
To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough. Santa Cruz Public Libraries. We are your library. Find yourself in the library. Find your voice. Find your groove. Find your history. Find your future. Find your community. Find yourself in any of our 10 local branches in Aptos, Boulder Creek, Bransaforti, Capitola, Downtown Santa Cruz, Felton, Garfield, La Selva, Live Oak, and Scotts Valley, the Bookmobile, and online at santacruzpl.org. Find yourself in the library. Are things getting a little messy around the office? At Coast Paper and Supply, we'll meet all your janitorial needs. Mops, dusters, disinfectants, we got them. Can't get rid of that smell in the break room? Try our deodorizer. Carpet stains? We have a cure for that, too. While you're at it, pick up the essentials. Garbage cans and liners, sponges and brooms. Is your company going green? Coast Paper and Supply is offering earth-friendly cleaning and food service alternatives. Our ever-evolving stock includes compostable bowls, plates, cups, and cutlery. Not to mention eco-friendly cleaners and biodegradable trash can liners, all at the lowest possible price. So come visit Coast Paper and Supply at 151 Josephine Street or look us up at coastpapersupplyinc.com. You can also call us at 831-423-3350. That's 831-423-3350. Join us on Stepping In this Saturday at 3 with our nurses, Jackie Tucker and Mary Ellen Young. Our special guest this week will be respected Marine veteran, Stoney Brook, who will be sharing information about veterans group within our community who are stepping in to support our returning heroes. Together, through laughter and tears, we'll inform you about what this community has to offer for those veterans. So tune in to Stepping In this Saturday at 3 o'clock on KSEO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Jeff Bingaman. We've been talking about the need to act on a global front when it comes to issues like nuclear waste, climate change, terrorism, and so on. Along those lines, we hear that Obama is looking to perhaps rekindle the nuclear task ban treaty. And uh, Rose Gottmuller, U.S. Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, she, uh, actually, she was in your home state of New Mexico meeting with uh, Sandia and Los Alamos Labs. And I think she even visited the site of the first nuclear weapons test at White Sands Missile Range. Is that right? You know, I don't know what her itinerary was when she was here, but uh, I know Rose and have great respect for her. Uh, but uh, I don't know where she visited when she was here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Do you hear much about the, the, the rekindling of the nuclear test ban treaty? Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, we tried to, tried to ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty back in, ni- in 99, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't have the votes to do it. And it was brought up in the Senate, and it was clear that we didn't have the votes and uh, and uh, fell short. Uh, you know, I, I have great difficulty. Maybe there's something going on that I'm not aware of, but I have great difficulty seeing how this president, given his current uh, uh, relations with the Republican-controlled Congress, uh, I have great difficulty seeing how anything can be done this year during the remaining of his presidency on this kind of an issue which uh, which uh, we were not able to deal with uh, back uh, when we tried. Yeah, I I remember in uh, around 1999 that this was uh, this was floated, and at the time, 183 nations had signed the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, uh, but according to the United Nations, the holdouts were. The U.S., China, Israel, Egypt, India, Pakistan, and North Korea. In other words, the nations who have the most active programs. Right. <laughs> so I'm not. I don't even know if the current treaty means anything at all if you can't get those folks on board. No, I think uh, you know. For the in order, 
in order for us to uh, to ratify the treaty, I think we're going to have to have a significant change in the Congress, uh, and we're going to have to have a, a, a different uh, a president in the White House. But uh, I commend this president for whatever efforts he makes on this front. But uh, you know, I, I just think it's it's hard to see how anything that that significant would be passing through this Congress and, and, and passing the U.S. Senate, given the fact that they won't even consider his, his upcoming uh, nomination for the Supreme Court and the various other positions that uh, they've taken in opposition to uh, pretty much anything that he initiates. So do you think, is it your opinion that uh, Obama is dead in the water where the Congress is concerned until the new president is elected? Well, I think he needs to continue uh, trying to find ways, and, and as again, I commend him for trying to find ways to move ahead uh, jointly with the Congress. Uh, you know, he came out with this proposal to close Guantanamo uh, just earlier this week, which uh, is uh, commendable. Uh, I support his effort in that regard, but again, I think the Congress, uh, all indications are that that his plan to close Guantanamo will not be uh, favorably received by the Congress, and uh, and that uh, that issue will will be waiting for the next president. So, uh, so I, I think the president has decided on a lot of key issues that he he has to do all he can uh, as an executive uh, using his uh, executive powers, and uh, he's certainly doing that in the case of climate change, and and of course we've got court cases going on to to test whether or not he's exceeding his, his uh, powers in that regard. But uh, I don't think you're, you're going to get this Congress to do much of anything that they think would inure to the benefit or to the, uh, to the record or legacy of this president. That's, that's a sad statement, but uh, unfortunately I think true. So, you know, I, to your point, you're saying that he's put, he's floated a proposal for Guantanamo. Uh, it sounded like, uh, uh, the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Arms Control was saying that they would like to reopen the discussion of a comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, he's now going to uh, put forward his nominee for the Supreme Court justice. Um, you seem to say he's got to find ways to work with the Congress, but, uh, you know, that's like saying... Uh, uh, you know, two people that are trying to get a divorce need to try to figure out how to get the divorce. I mean, well, attorneys make a lot of money uh, <laughs> off of divorces yeah. because people can't figure out how to leave each other. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not suggesting that he, he figure out how to leave the, the Congress, but I am saying, you know, he he is trying to find find initiatives and find things to work on that he can bring the Congress along to help him with. What can he but, do in the Congress? What could he do to bring the Congress along? Well, I don't see a whole lot at this point on on major uh, major policy issues. I think that uh, I think fortunately we we uh, before John Boehner left as speaker, uh, there was agreement to keep the government functioning and not to close the government, uh, and also to uh, extend the debt ceiling uh, so that we wouldn't default on debts. Now, those are two things which people tend to take for granted, but the truth is uh, we have had uh, several years here during which uh, it was a real challenge to to keep the lights on in Congress and in the government generally, and also to um, avoid default on the debt. So mm-hmm. so before John Boehner left, uh, we were able to, to extend those or, or push those problems off for some period. Uh, and the president deserves some credit for working with John Boehner to do that. But uh, these other initiatives you're talking about, I have real trouble seeing how he can get Congress to cooperate. I, I would like to tell you it's possible, but uh, it doesn't seem very, very possible to me based on the news that I read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, lastly, before we run out of time, do you have a website or a social media site where people can go to get more information on your views and activities? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we keep up with you, Senator? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I...
I occasionally somebody like yourself calls me and asks my opinion on something, but uh, that's about it. That's about it. Well, I I will give you a big tip: hurry up and write a book, and then the yeah. publisher will put up a book site, and that's how everybody, all your fans, can get a hold of you. Well, I think. <laughs> I think both of my fans uh, probably know know my phone number, so so it's it's not a big problem. But, but I thank I thank you for your suggestion. Well, I I thank you for making time to see us uh, and and speak with us today. Uh, before we say goodbye, I do want to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Bingaman. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be on your program, and congratulations on on having a, a serious uh, program talking about issues. I think it's it's. It's rare in this uh, day and time, and uh, I'm it glad is to indeed. See it is indeed, and I will thank you for giving us such a nice compliment. And you are welcome to come back anytime, sir. Always happy to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Jeff Bingaman, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And let me know how you feel about the need for a comprehensive national energy plan, one that lays out a clear roadmap for America. Feels to me like we keep addressing each individual piece separately. And when you do that, it rarely adds up to anything that makes sense. And we all know energy independence is a national security issue at this point in time. So isn't it time for a cohesive blueprint? Send your comments to RebeccaCosta.com and let me know what you think. And by the way, if you happen to miss the full interview with Jeff Bingaman, remember that you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And if you haven't gone to our website yet, well, you're missing one of the best online blogs on the web. This week's blog explains why the 2016 presidential election will be studied by scholars for years to come because the rules which used to separate winners from losers are being rewritten as we speak. From the idea that the candidate that raised the most money had an advantage over his or her competitors to the fact that the endorsements are not packing the punch that they once did. So pick up the blog at RebeccaCosta.com. My guest next week is popular columnist for the Washington Post, Dana Milbank, who's stopping by to deal head-on with a touchy subject, whether being a woman is helping or hurting Hillary Clinton. Don't miss the always outspoken Dana Milbank next week when he breaks down the 2016 race for us right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 